If you weren't here last week when we were in Matthew 11, uh, back there we met a man named John the Baptist who was in prison. And uh, he sent some of his disciples, some of his followers to Jesus with a question. And he wanted his followers to ask Jesus the question, are you the one we were expecting to come or are we looking for someone else? I don't know if you picked it up or not, but in today's reading, there's another burning question asked by the followers of Jesus. These followers have been walking with Jesus. They've been watching his miracles happen all around them, and they asked another question. Jesus, could you possibly be the son of David? And it's interesting, these two questions, I don't know if you've ever heard the expression that there's always a question behind the question. And the question behind the question that seems to unite both of these questions is a question we all ask at different times and in different ways in our life, and it is this. Is God really going to keep his promises? Can I trust God to keep his word? Now, in uh, a modern day, it might look something like this. We would happen to live just by chance in a country where there are elections, and leading up to an election, we hear politicians make promises. And then the election happens, and after the election, all the promises that were made, well, the politicians seem to come down with a similar disease. I think it's called amnesia politicus. Okay, I think I just made that up. But you know what I'm getting at, right? And I don't even have $3 million in my super account. Um, and it doesn't matter which side of politics you are on, how recent it was or how far you go back, there's something about anyone breaking their word to us which is particularly aggravating, right? And I think because at the bottom of all that, we have this deeply embedded distrust of God. God, are you really going to keep your word? And there is no one better in all of the Bible than the Lord Jesus Christ to look to as the person who shows us we absolutely can trust God to keep his word. And Matthew is one of Jesus' followers who is writing the words that were read to us this morning and that we will be looking at in this sermon. And Matthew it seems, draws on a 700-year-old promise from Isaiah to help us see that we absolutely can trust God to keep his word. This is what we read earlier in verse 17. Jesus going away and uh, so forth was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love, in whom I delight, I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out, till he has brought justice through to victory. In his name, the nations will put their trust." You see, the problem that John was facing in prison and the followers of Jesus were facing in their day as they were wondering if God will really keep his word is directly connected to this promise of God 700 years earlier. It is a promise that God is going to bring justice, the justice we all long for in our hearts. 
But what Isaiah is pointing out and Matthew is reinforcing is that in the whole story arc of the Bible, from the first cover to the last cover, God doesn't work in the way we expect him to work. Before God brings judgment, he always offers mercy. And that's what Jesus was doing last week when he stood up and he welcomed everybody to come to him, all of us who are laboring and weary and find rest for our souls. This was Jesus' offer of mercy to each of us. And today in this lengthy chapter, chapter 12, we're going to see five offers of Jesus' mercy. And he's also giving us a warning that if we reject his offer of mercy, we are at risk of facing irredeemable judgment from God. But if we accept this mercy, we find a place in his forever family. So let's jump into this first offer together. The first offer we see at the very beginning of our reading is that Jesus offers mercy in the face of condemnation. Now, if you don't know who the Pharisees are, they are the main combatants against Jesus. If we were to think of them in modern terms like an evil hybrid of paparazzi and woke journalist, we're probably getting down to where they are. I mean, they are really tough people. They follow Jesus everywhere he goes, and they challenge everything that he says. And on this particular beautiful Sabbath morning, a day kind of like today, Jesus and his disciples are walking through the grain fields. I think the disciples are enjoying the rest that Jesus has just offered them. And as they go their way, they're a bit hungry, so they just reach over and pick a bit of grain here and a bit of grain there. I don't know what it's like to eat raw grain, but apparently it helped. And uh, as the Pharisees were watching them, they point their fingers and say, Aha, Jesus! We've caught you. Your disciples are breaking the law. Now, here's a legal charge brought against Jesus, and so he argues against that charge with two cases of legal precedent from the Old Testament. He talks about a story from the life of David, an event where David was running, and he went into the uh, temple with his mates, and they ate the holy sacred bread there that was against the law. And another case where the uh, men serving in the temple were also allowed to eat the sacred food on the Sabbath day. And what Jesus is pointing out with this clarity, and it's really an offer of mercy in the face of their condemnation, is that the Son of Man has come, and if they knew that, they would not have condemned the innocent. The Son of Man is the Lord of the harvest. And that expression, the Son of Man, connects with these religious people directly. He's saying, God is in your midst, and he's offering a relationship with you. And all they could offer up was condemnation. So we see an offer of mercy from Jesus in the face of this condemnation, but also, secondly, in the face of a leading question. And the leading question goes like this in verse 9. Going on from that place, he, Jesus, went into their synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus, they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So here's another charge. 
It's really a veiled accusation, right? This leading question, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? And Jesus' answer, once again, is another legal refutation. He says, you guys know the law. If you have an animal that falls into a pit on the Sabbath day, of course you go down and save the life of the beast. Now, following on from that then, how much more valuable is a human being than an animal? Of course it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. But they reject this offer of mercy from Jesus. And here we begin to see this warning now from Jesus mounting up, this this rhetoric. Matthew is putting together this argument that if we reject the offer of Jesus' mercy, we are at risk of irredeemable judgment. And our next place in Matthew 12 helps us see this. It's kind of like the very heart of what Matthew is getting as he puts this together for us. I'm going to read beginning at verse 24. If you have your Bibles, follow along there. It'll be up on the screen as well. It's a bit of a lengthy reading, but this is at the heart of what Matthew wants us to understand. Verse 24, but when the Pharisees heard this, that Jesus had cast out a demon, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your people drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or again, how can anyone enter into a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. And so I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. But I tell you that everyone will have to give account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words, you will be condemned. Now, the Pharisees couldn't beat Jesus in the legal realm, and so they decide to go to the metaphysical or to the spiritual realm. It is the realm that you and I cannot see, we cannot engage with directly, although it directly engages with us. And they bring this accusation against Jesus that The power, Jesus, you have to cast out demons is actually, you're getting that power from Satan. And so instead of going back to legal precedent like he's done with the other two accusations, now Jesus attacks their logic. And he says, this is ridiculous. Satan does not cannibalize his own kingdom. Don't you understand? Satan is not going to cast himself out. And further on, this logic goes to show that if it's not by the power of Satan that I'm doing this, and it's by the power of the Spirit, 
then the kingdom of God is right here with you today. Now again, remember, Jesus is offering mercy before he brings judgment. And that is sometimes where we get hung up in believing God is going to keep his word. Because the word that we want God to keep are his promises to take care of injustice. And Isaiah, from the beginning all the way to the end, is saying, no, what God does is he comes in, first of all, with his ministries of mercy. What a beautiful interview we've heard this morning, what God is doing through Samaritan's Purse. And it's a reflection of how God continues to bring out mercy even in the face of judgment. And so Jesus gives this interesting story, right, about this strong man who lives in a big house, in a strong house, and if you're going to go in and plunder his goods, you're going to bind up the strong man first. And I don't think it's too hard to work out who Jesus is referring to there. He is, of course, referring to Satan. And he's saying, I have come, and all the miraculous things you see me doing is the mercy God has always had on offer, and it is those acts of kindness that bind Satan and allow people to be transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And that's why I hope God has touched your heart here today already before I even got up to speak. I hope he touched your heart through the singing, through the interview, to realize that God is at work in every way that we can ever imagine. All the good things from the sunshine falling down on the flowers to us going out and helping those who are in sickness and in suffering. But there is a battle going on in the spiritual realm, Jesus says. And he has come to fight that battle for us. We live in an age when people kind of be, are kind of skeptical about that, right? They like to think, oh, well, if I can't see it, if I can't smell it, taste it, if I can't uh, judge it with the uh, theories and everything, then it doesn't really exist. So we have to be careful of not minimizing the battle that is really going on in the spiritual realm. But on the other side of that, we have to be careful of those who think they know everything else that is going on in the spiritual realm. And they seem to know what you should do about it. And they put all kinds of false pressure on us to be worried about there. Jesus draws our attention to his works and to what God is doing through the power of his Holy Spirit. And now I'm getting to what a lot of you have been wondering about, right? What is this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? What is this sin that is so serious it can never be forgiven in this life or in the life to come. So Jesus says you can only be on one side or the other. You can, either be, you can only be for me or against me. You can only be gathering with me or you are scattering out. You can only be growing a good tree with good fruit or you can be growing a bad tree with bad fruit. And what we see in these combatants against Jesus is those who are resisting, rebelling, and rejecting the clear work of the Spirit of God to show that the kingdom of God has come. Now, those are kind of big terms in the big picture of what God is doing in the nation of Israel. But in the Isaiah prophecy, we see that Jesus is so gentle with us as individuals when we are feeling broken. He doesn't just cast us out. 
When we are feeling like a smoldering wick at the end of the oil, we're about to go out. Jesus doesn't snuff us out. What God does is he brings mercy and the way we respond to that mercy, the way we respond to the acts of God's grace in our lives, whether they're common grace to everyone in the world or whether it is very specific in our own lives, that is our response to the Holy Spirit. And sometimes it can look as obvious as rejecting him like the Pharisees, or you can read about this in further depth and perhaps to a scarier degree in the, right, in the book of Hebrews. In the book of Hebrews, the writer tells us that there are people who go along with the work of the Holy Spirit. They come to church. Jesus says there's even people, in Matthew 7, there's people who do, do miracles, wonderful works in his name. But in the book of Hebrews, when the hard times come, those who are not really born again, they fall away. They reject, they resist the work of the Holy Spirit, and that rejection can never be forgiven. Now, if you are worried about that this morning, I have good news for you. That's a great sign. Because the people who have sinned against the Holy Spirit, they don't give a damn. And that's exactly what happens to them. They are damned forever. And so if you care and are concerned, then do what God's Spirit is prompting you to do in your heart. Listen to him. Listen to the words of Jesus. And stop coming up with ways to justify your right to live your life in your own way outside of God's law, outside of the boundaries that God has set for our protection and good in the way he's told us to live. But here's the good news about this offer of mercy to these Pharisees who are rejecting. The good news is that many of the Pharisees in Jesus' day became Christians, became followers of Jesus. We read about one of them in the book of Acts named Saul, who became the apostle Paul. But we also read about one of the Pharisees in Jesus' day by the name of Nicodemus. He came to Jesus by night in John chapter 3, and later on, after Jesus had died on the cross, this Pharisee, Nicodemus, made sure Jesus got a proper burial. Why did he do that? Well, he responded to the words of Jesus in John 3 and verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. And so the entire Bible is screaming out from cover to cover that God loves us, and he hasn't come to condemn the world. He doesn't need to. We've condemned ourselves already. And we do that, by the way, we respond to God's offer of mercy. There is a way of response that once given, you are at risk 
of irredeemable judgment from God, should the Spirit of God leave you and never come back again, should you die, you are without another chance. But there are two more offers of mercy that we'll look at briefly as we come to an end here this morning. The fourth offer of mercy is mercy in the face of stupidity. At the very end of that reading, Jesus said, by your own words, you will be acquitted or condemned. Now listen to what they say. In the very next verse, 38, then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Now this has to be one of the most stupid things said in all of the Bible. This is the teacher who's given sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf. He's caused the mute to speak, the lame to walk, cast out demons, and we want to see a sign from you? Listen to what he says next. A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. Seriously, if you think you heard the volume in the voice of Jesus just go up when he said, a wicked and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, you're spot on. The temperature is rising in this conversation. And yet, even in the midst of this, is this marvelous offer of mercy from Jesus. What does he do? He points them to his coming death, burial, and resurrection by pointing them back to Jonah, the story of Jonah. It may seem ridiculous to people in our human understanding that a big fish could swallow a man and he could live down in the belly of that fish for three days and three nights, but Jesus doesn't think it's ridiculous because he knows the miraculous power of his father. He knows that his father always keeps his word. And I think one of the most amazing statements of trust in God's word in all of the Bible is when Jesus is hanging on the cross and the very last words out of his life are, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus is publicly saying to everyone that's listening and to us today, my dad is going to keep his word. And I think that's one of the challenges we all face, right? We tend to look at the people in this life, whether it's politicians or family, who don't keep their word. And Jesus says, don't look at them. Look at my dad. Look at my father. And that is the final offer of mercy that we see this morning in this such an interesting story. It is a final offer of mercy for those who repent. In verse 46, Jesus was still talking to the crowd. His mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied to him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Now, you may have a lot of questions about this little event in the life of Jesus, but I'm only going to answer this one because it really is the most important question. 
What does it mean to do the will of his Father in heaven? And Matthew already answers this for us back in chapter 3 when John the Baptist is preaching and he says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus, the next chapter in chapter 4 and verse 17 says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. So to do the will of Jesus' Father in heaven is to repent and recognize that the kingdom of God is here in the person of Jesus. He is the one greater. He is the greatest. And to repent means that I've been going in this direction, trusting in myself, making sure that no one else is going to hurt me and harm me. I will be true to my word, and I'll protect myself from everyone else who's lied to me and, and who's not true to their word. Repentance means I'm going to stop trusting in myself, and I will believe God to keep his word just like he did in the life of Jesus. It really means that you become the brother or sister of Jesus when you stop thinking God owes you anything. God doesn't owe us anything. He doesn't owe us lower interest rates. He doesn't owe us a promotion at work. He doesn't owe you healing from your sickness. He doesn't owe you a sexually satisfying marriage. He doesn't owe you a marriage. He doesn't owe you kids. He doesn't owe us a thing. And so we stop fighting for our own rights and what we think God owns us, and we let God be God. A sin against the Holy Spirit is to never do that and never be forgiven. It is to accept God's offer of mercy in the face of our condemnation, in the face of our leading questions. It is to offer God's mercy in the face of the stupid things that we, sorry, it is to accept God's mercy in the face of the stupid things we say. It is to accept God's worse, uh, mercy to finally come alongside Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane where there is, I think, the other great statement of trust from Jesus to his Father. Jesus doesn't go to the Garden of Gethsemane and drag out all the good miracles that he's done and all the good things he's done for his Father and say, now, Father, let's make a deal. This thing about the crucifixion coming up, can we renegotiate? No, he comes to that place where he says, God, you don't owe me anything. I'd really like it if you take it away, but Father, not my will, but yours be done. And all of us are at different stages with that, right? God's will being worked out in our lives looks different for someone who's in their 20s than someone who's in their 80s. It looks different for people who live in one place and live in another. It looks different for people moving back to Canada, and it looks different for people who are never going to go anywhere. But ultimately, it is that question behind the burning question. Can I trust God? Can I take him at his word to fulfill his promises? So there you have it, an invitation to every one of us who are laboring and burdened to come to Jesus and find rest in his forever family. If we resist and rebel and ultimately reject the offer of Jesus' mercy, we are at risk right here today 
of facing an irredeemable judgment from God. But if we accept that humbly, we can find a place in his forever family. Would you join me in prayer? Oh, loving God, you have been so kind to us. In our hearts, we have this deep distrust of you and this strong desire to see all of our problems fixed. And we have been pursuing everything in the hopes of finding heaven on earth here today. Would you give us the patience of Jesus to trust you, to come through when your timing is perfect? Help us to look at him in the Garden of Gethsemane and know that whatever we are facing, we can trust you with it. Would you help us to look at him hanging on the cross, committing his spirit to you, about to experience something that no one has ever experienced before, going to death, having to trust you to bring them back from the dead. Oh, loving God, would you work by the power of your spirit here this morning so that no one would walk out of here resisting, but today would be the, today would be the day of salvation, whether it's for the first time in coming to you or for the next time that each of us need to. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.